Welcome back to yet another episode of the ERG Movement Podcast. If you haven't checked into the ERG Movement Podcast before, we bring some amazing people from all around the world to speak about best practices when it comes to employer resource groups. And today is no exception to that amazing people rule. Uh, We have Jill here. And actually, Jill, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and how you got into the ERG space. Thank you so much. I'm so happy and excited to be here. Um, my name is Jill Quinn. My pronouns are she, her. I'm based in Ireland um, and I'm working as a diversity, inclusion and belonging program manager. Um, I've been working in the tech space, managing ERGs for about so four years now, four or five. I need to uh, check my LinkedIn again. Um, and in terms of my identities, I'm intersectional like that's the first thing first for me I'm way more than you know my gender or my race or what I'm wearing on a certain day um but I think beyond intersectionality like I do identify as a woman I am neurodiverse and I'm always always questioning um the way I see my role and like I guess my mission in life is to empower the community and allies to make positive change when it comes to diversity inclusion and blogging I'm happy to share more about, you know, how I ended up here and what I'm doing. But currently I'm managing a global ERG program with HubSpot. Um, and I'm doing that with a phenomenal diversity, inclusion and belonging team. Before, when we talked, you were telling me a little bit about your background, which is different, I would say, than most people within the ERG space. But I thought it was so interesting. So could you tell everyone a little bit about, um, yeah, your background before you got into the space? Absolutely. Um I guess to start, as I said, I'm Irish. Um, and so what that means is I grew in my formative years in a post-conflict society because we had about like a 30-year war called the Troubles. So growing up in school, our communities were very divided. We saw it on the news and the media. And we also learned a lot in history. And that's really where my interest for DIMB started because I was seeing things on the news. I was hearing different conversations and I wanted to learn more. Um, and so I became obsessed with history and particularly with Anne Frank. So I started learning a lot about World War II and like the discrimination of the Jewish community. Um, and then that basically led me to explore a career in human rights law. So I, I did political science and history in university. And then I went down to do two masters on human rights. And I focused really on international criminal law. So particularly on war crimes trials and on the experience of women and girls during conflicts and particularly during genocides. So I spent a lot of time, you know, reviewing evidence from World War II and looking up different cases from uh, conflicts in like former Yugoslavia and Rwanda and Cambodia and thought that I wanted to be like a a lawyer, you know, an international lawyer standing in The Hague, you know, fighting the good fight. Um, And then I realized very, very um, quickly is that I'm too empathetic uh, for, for that type of work rather than, you know, having my head down, looking at all of these atrocities that have been committed in the past, I really wanted to look forward to the future. And so what I did was I pivoted into international development. So taking all of my human rights um, based learning and my like experience in social justice to action. And so I started working at an organization called Plan International. And so that organization um, is a global international development organization for girls um, and, and young women. And so I was part of a diversity, inclusion and belonging team there. I managed um, global diversity, inclusion and belonging programs across 
Africa, Asia, Latin America, obviously like in partnership with, um, you know, people that were from those countries. We also have like, let's say, for example, I worked on a program on LGBTQ plus education and awareness for young people. So we've worked with local LGBT organizations in each of the locations. And so with that experience, I got so much. So I got to travel, which is an incredible opportunity. I got to learn so many different cultures. I got to be outside of my comfort zone, you know, not just sitting in, in Ireland um, with the terrible weather. It's currently pouring rain at the moment. Um, and I got to learn from a lot of people. Um, and so with that, I got a lot of experience in terms of program management, um, in terms of communications, advocacy, um, and also, you know, really making money go far. So like we often talk about ERGs, how they're under-resourced. So thinking outside of the box because in charity work, you're always under-resourced. Um, and I worked in, in that sector for about five years. And then being very vulnerable and frank with you all and all of the listeners is I had a really, really bad episode of burnout. So I've clinical depression and I've, I've struggled and managed with that for, for years. But it kind of all came to after a series of just consistent traveling, uh, traveling as a young woman by myself, like in um, you know faraway countries. Um, and so with my burnout and with like a pretty bad depressive episode, I decided it was time to take a pause and reflect. And that brought me to tech. And the reason being is that I'm in Dublin. I'm in Europe. Dublin is one of the hubs for tech companies. So I was learning about like my friend's experience, you know, people I went to university with and what they were doing. And I started to do some research to understand, you know, how could I be part of that? I never thought I would work in the corporate world. I always thought that was like the furthest thing from what I want to do. Like I'm inside out, I'm an advocate, I'm an activist. Um, but after doing my research and learning about a lot of companies that are very mission driven, they're doing quite a lot on, you know, corporate social responsibility or on ESG, environmental um, sustainability and governments or environmental social governance, my apologies. And um, I was learning more and more and talking to people and realized there's this whole DIMB world in tech. Um, and I think there's a lot of learnings that actually are coming from the charity sector into tech because in a lot of ways, we were doing this work for years and years before. Um, and so it was a really natural uh, combination. It wasn't easy and I still struggle. Like I still struggle to manage, you know, I am very purpose-driven, I'm very value-driven. I don't care that much about, you know, ROI as much as others. And then I'm more focused on like impact on people and like positive change. Um, but I'm excited and I feel like all of the things I've been learning and doing are very well suited for this role. Um, so shout out if anyone else is like has moved from from charity sector into tech, or if you're planning to, I would definitely recommend it with patience and caution. <laughs> There's so much that you just covered that I want to touch on. It's like, where do I even start? For one, I will say a lot of people in the ERG space, whether they're program managers or even ERG leaders, start off as activists, which most of the time is like just socially. So maybe like you participate in some protests, you sign waivers, but it's completely different to make that part of your career like you did um, when you were doing it as charity work. So I think if anyone can speak to this question, you can. When transitioning into a role, which you kind of touched on a little bit, where you as an activist now have to 
do for others. Like one, that can be taxing. I can imagine like the weight of that. Um, but how, how do you balance it all? I guess like your passion for maybe a specific community, even with the history that you were speaking about that you were studying, that really might have you like really leaning towards like, this is the community I know about and I really want to support, but I'm trying to, you know, play it equal for all of them. How do you balance it all? Oh, it's always a constant balancing act. So I think from a personal side, as I mentioned, like, I'm very empathetic and what that means and how that can show up sometimes is I get very, very involved and that leads to burnout. So I need to manage that myself and also, you know, delegate, get other people involved, ask for help, also say no. And they're all things that I continuously have to remind myself and others to practice. And then in terms of like learning, like that's the biggest thing is, you know, I've been working in this kind of industry in some way for about 10 years but I'm still learning every single day and I think a really big exercise that I do regularly myself like as a kind of moment of reflection is looking at my identities like what makes me who I am what do I not have like as a dominant characteristic and do I understand about that how does that show up in terms of what I'm reading what I'm listening to who I'm talking with etc but also it's making those conscious efforts. So like for me, particularly over the last few years, there was a very conscious shift that I needed to learn more about um, other people's religions. Um, because growing up in Ireland, we were primarily taught about Catholicism and I'm not really very religious. And we have a lot of connotations in our country about religion. So I had always kind of steered away from those, sorry, steered away from those like difficult conversations but I have to lean into it. So I think one of my biggest learnings was learning more about like Muslim experiences um, of like women in tech, let's say, or um, particularly with Black Lives Matter movement is like understanding my role in unpacking systemic barriers and structures and kind of confronting them and not being scared to be challenged. Also, I was often so used to talking. So it's like, Jill, you don't have to talk today. And I think it actually has just helped me so much to realize what value I bring. And I think the value I bring a lot of times is being an ally and being an advocate and being in the background. So the best part about my job is empowering others to thrive and succeed and to like be their best selves and not necessarily be the one who's like sharing their story, which is obviously very ironic given that I'm sharing my story here, but we will obviously be talking about ERGs and the experiences um but it's really really fascinating and I think it's a constant struggle for all DIMB professionals it's also something that you're continuously confronted with your identity with your choices with how you show up in the world every day as part of your job and that takes a lot out of you so you need to take care of yourself and take care of people around you that was so well said especially <laughs> The part about not being scared to lean into the things that like thought patterns and like just ways of living that you're not used to. That's something that even me, like recently, I'm like, oh, I can now see how like my childhood is playing a role in why it's, you know, easier for me to lean in in some places and not. And like you said, that is challenging. Um, you're not necessarily taught how to like think in someone else's shoes and someone else's. Yeah. So how, what recommendations would you give for someone who might be struggling, um, struggling mm -hmm. to do that? 
Well, I love that you mentioned that you're like unpacking like how your childhood influences. I kind of leading in um, to the question is I had a really, really impactful conversation um, with somebody who specializes in intergenerational trauma. And we were talking about, you know, the experiences of like black Hispanic communities and how, you know, ancestral experiences influence how you show up. But we also took that time to unpack like my um, ancestral and like childhood experience. And like in general, the vibe is that Irish people, we have, we have historically been marginalized. So we were always looking for approval. And so oftentimes that shows up in how Irish people communicate or how we deal with conflicts. It's more like, oh, we're okay. We're a happy people. Please don't hurt us rather than, you know, being direct and confrontational. So that really, really shows up like in terms of how I show up in the work um, that we do. And I guess in terms of like your specific question, I'm going to actually have to ask you to repeat it. No, no worries. I have to rethink of what it was because yeah. like it started making me think of stuff like oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean that's the, the essence of a good conversation. Cause you were just saying, like, even understanding historically, ancestrally, you know, how that can show up in you currently, a lot of people like don't really dive into that or think that it matters or think that the historical piece shows up today. So I love that point in and of itself. The The question was, um, what advice would you give to people who are struggling to be, I guess in a sense, it would almost be like more empathetic. Someone said to me yesterday, and maybe that's really what this question is. What would you say to someone who says that empathy is something that can't be taught? Mm. It's just something that you have or you don't. Would you agree with that? Oh, I'm finding the word empathy so interesting because I feel like when I was growing up and when I was starting out in my career, it was a bad word. It was like, it meant you were too sensitive. It meant that you were too, um, like you wanted to please everybody. And so now I feel like it's become a huge buzzword of like, what is empathy? I definitely think people, um, it's like part of a learned behavior. So you learn it growing up. Um, in terms of, you know, maybe your relationship with your family, friends and parents, you know, maybe your access to different services and education. But also, I think it's your broader understanding of the world, because I think with empathy. You have to reflect first on your privilege before you can really understand others. I do think it can be learned. So I think, you know, there's been a lot of um, whether it was events or initiatives that I that I've been part of where people did like demonstrate an increase in empathy as they learned like as they really put themselves in the shoes of others and I remember years ago this must have been about eight years maybe um when I worked at Plan International we were talking a lot about um privilege and power and so we would do a physical walk and so everybody would have you'd have maybe a group of 10 people standing in a row and everybody would be given a card and the card would give them an identity um, and so Basically, we would ask a series of questions and for every question that you would answer yes to, you would step forward. For every question that you would maybe say no to, you take a step back. And basically, it's a privilege walk or a power walk. So at the end, you've got a visual of typically white men, um, you know, maybe that went to college education further along. Then you might have like 
a woman with disabilities or a woman of color, etc. And so that activity was really helpful because people visually saw and could reflect on their own privilege in this kind of fictional scenario and had those connections. And I think so that it is definitely possible to learn. But I also think what's really important is practicing it. So just because, you know, you you go to an ERG event or just because you might, um, you know, one time have interrupted racism or like been a like an upstander, it doesn't mean that you're consistently demonstrating empathy. I think you always have to practice it for yourself and for others. I love it. So education, that's really what helps to build that muscle. But it is a muscle that you have yeah. to keep flexing and working out. That was love that another point of vision when you were speaking about your background is that you're managing um a dni program across the world and even very it's not super frequent that that also includes africa so that's going to be parts of the the takes here but even most commonly especially in tech it is um asia and amia that are like outside of the us how was that experience managing diversity and inclusion across the globe how did it vary um in different regions oh so for context so this was particularly with plan international and so we would have had regional headquarters in like africa asia latin america and we would have also had offices in different countries and mm -hmm. so i worked so closely with people across particularly across west africa and um, in terms of programming and like programming for the organization could have been uh, programs around basic access to education or emergency response or um, sexual health and reproductive rights for, for girls and young women, etc. And so a key thread of that was diversity and inclusion. And so like my experience in Africa, a lot of it was to do with disability inclusion. Um, so like, for example, in Uganda, I had the absolute pleasure of facilitating an excellent session on disability inclusion with uh, some local government and with some of the staff, basically to build a better understanding of what is disability inclusion, you know, what are some inclusive practices, what does accessibility look like if you're, you know, rebuilding a school or if you're creating vocational opportunities for young people, et cetera. And so look, that was a really great opportunity and it wouldn't have been possible without working with local disabled persons organizations and understanding local context, um, et cetera. And so those experiences, whether it was traveling and working there and like understanding more about communities made my understanding a lot broader because it also brought out those aspects. And I think in terms of if we think of the nuances regionally, like there's one story that really, really comes to mind for me. And it was a few years ago, I went to Benin um, and we were doing a, a session on LGBT inclusion. And so in Benin, the primary language is French. I do not speak French. So I was there with a lovely translator who was helping me and I was essentially um, there to, in the background, help the event go successfully. Like the workshop was over about three days in the middle of nowhere in a town called Widan and um, it was really, really great. But for me, at home in Ireland, we were having one of our biggest kind of changes in the last 10 years and it was our um, referendum about repealing the Eighth Amendment which is access to safe abortion in Ireland. So I've done my postal vote to register, you know, how I want to vote in the referendum. I'm in the middle of West Africa and I'm, I'm talking with colleagues who are like, 
you don't have access to safe abortion in Ireland. Like, and I was sharing my experiences of growing up as a woman in Ireland. And they were like, a lot of that seems very backwards. So I think oftentimes there's this assumption that Africa's further behind, where in a lot of ways they're way more advanced. And then I think in terms of like, what are the specific nuances? I think particularly as we talk about like race and ethnicity, it's a different conversation in a lot of ways. And I see that show up a lot actually in my current role at HubSpot. Um, so we have um, various different employee resource groups. One of them is called Black Hub. So it's just for, for the Black community. We also have one that's called People of Colour at HubSpot or POCA. But a lot of Africans, meaning Africans who might you know, be from Nigeria, have moved to Ireland to work, like maybe here for a few years. They're not having the same experiences like an African-American who's grown up as like first or second generation. Their experience is they're African living in Ireland um, or they're living in France and they want to celebrate like their specific culture and, you know, language, like everything. And so they might associate more with a group like Africans at HubSpot, which we have. And so I think the importance of all of this is being open-minded, like not making assumptions, you know, just because we don't talk about DIB in Africa as visibly on like a, like a global stage, it doesn't mean there hasn't been lots of progress and lots of best practices coming from there. And also it's just that kind of consistent reminder to listen to the context, listen to people and don't make assumptions. Mm. Now, what about in EMEA? Cause that's honestly, and you being in Ireland, I'm so happy we're having this conversation. But really it's a, it's a pain point. I'm hearing <laughs> from a lot of people, their organizations are saying, well, how do we get, um, you know, European employees to be more brought into diversity and inclusion efforts or to join more employee resource groups? What's your take on that? Oh, I have so many thoughts. And I think because we often talk about EMEA, right? E-M-E-A, which is the Europe, Middle East and Africa. Uh, but a lot of times we're actually talking about Europe. Um, you know, a lot of companies, especially tech companies, they don't have large offices in like the Middle East and North Africa. So I think that's a really important like differentiation. But as we think of Europe, because that's where I have the most experience, is like EMEA or Europe is not a country. We are, uh, <laughs> there's lots of different countries in, in, the, in the region. We're culturally rich, like each location has its own language and nuances. Also their own um, jurisdictions and individual legal um, like jurisprudence and, and stuff that you have to stick to. For example, like disability, like in the likes of France and Germany, there's quotas and there's um, targets for the number of people with disability that are hired based on the size of your company. So we need to lean into that. Other countries have completely inadequate laws when it comes to employee and em employer discrimination. Um, so you need to be conscious of that. And I think when we think of Europe or EMEA, a big opportunity and a gap is linguistic diversity. So we don't all speak the same language. So when we're talking about DIMB, you have to translate the apps, like in itself, you have to translate diversity, inclusion and belonging into what does that mean, like technically for a language, but also what does it mean to people? Um, and I also think like, as we think of the region, it's very much free movement in a lot of countries. So people are moving we are, you know, often a lot of times like to really generalize 
realize that a lot of people aren't searching for the same identity that maybe in the U.S. people are, because we can, in a lot of places, trace back our heritage, or we can, you know, really, really connect to our communities. And I think that's a big difference with the U.S. I also think because each country in Europe has its own governments, a lot of times what I kind of see, like anecdotally, is that maybe people in Europe aren't as interested to be as engaged in DIMB work or to be honest in anything outside of your core role because a job is a job and private life is private life so sometimes you know you might have somebody who's really really active in let's say like LGBT movements in their personal life they don't want to do that in their office because they want to work from nine to five and they want to take their holidays so you need to be conscious of this um, and I think when it comes to Europe I think the biggest lessons learned is not replicating um, we can't just take a you know, uh, something that worked in the US and do a copy and paste model, whether it's for an E or G like mission statement or whether it's for the type of events we do, whether it's even for the communications plan. Um, like as we think of communications plan for an E or G, different languages, different ways we communicate, like different ways we show up. I remember a session that we did around, um, it was called a Biology of Belonging Bootcamp. Um, by Raj Kumari Ngomi, which I can, I'll share the information. Um, but we were doing a session and afterwards Raj Kumari asked me, she said, there's quite a lot of people who like, didn't really engage as much. Um, and I was like, well, did you notice that actually the majority of them were from Europe? And that's completely normal and, and natural for us. We were kind of listening, reflecting, but maybe not wanting to be as vulnerable in sharing personal stories with essentially like a group of strangers, like it's your work people. So I think that's a really, really big um, challenge that we have is ensuring that any programming or events or even content we do is relevant and that people feel safe and comfortable to share if they want to. But also there's no pressure. Like you don't have to get involved in every single thing. Live your life. <laughs> Again, you are a wealth of knowledge because so experience <laughs> in that. The first one, that I really latched on to was when you were saying, not it literally just went out my brain as I was saying that. No, the first one, oh, you were saying that people in America, they're not necessarily as connected to their culture, regardless of what race they are. Most of them are not really connected to their culture. Um, so they're trying to find a place of belonging in many times. And that's something that outside of America, that's not as big of a problem. So it's like, I don't really necessarily need a community group. I already have that in, in my day-to-day -day life. I have that all around me in the workplace. I've never thought about it in that way. Mm -hmm. But even if you think of like politics, so like oftentimes in most companies, like politics is like separate. Like even in my family, like if I think of my, I have very different views, political views from my parents, I will just kind of, skirt past that I mean, we might address it sometimes but it's like we're not always expected to kind of show up in that way and kind of bring our frustrations maybe with the healthcare or with you know the current election into the workplace unless it's completely irrelevant and I also think it's um it, it's a lot to do with also we have a lot of rights in 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 Europe let's say if whether it's to do with holidays or whether it's to do with pay so I think there's also maybe a cushion of support that we have in Europe that Americans might not have. Um, and that's very, very interesting and something to be very conscious of. 
but also we don't have the um, same level of, I think, risk in a lot of ways as perceived in, in America. I think a lot of people have felt, particularly over the last few years, like there's heightened sense of insecurity. And across the majority of countries in Europe, we wouldn't feel that all the time. Um, like I can say that particularly in Ireland, because we've been a neutral country in many things, like we're, we're, we're typically fine. Um, but we haven't had to go through um, a lot of the more recent turbulences that, that your um, country has. Mm, that, I mean, you hear a lot of the time, even when I ask this question, I've heard people say it's not one size fits all, which I get. But the way that you broke it down, even with all the different cultures and even when it comes to like down to language even that we're using where for us diversity means oh it means the same thing as it means everywhere but it doesn't mean that mm -hmm. and across all the different countries that make up Europe like even just speaking of Europe in particular there could be a ton of different meanings there yeah like even take the word intersectionality so I remember being in a workshop in Thailand and we were talking about intersectionality and there was no word in Thai for intersectionality and so at these type of events there was always like a banner that was printed to basically show like what is the event and then everyone at the end will stand behind it so we're making this banner and the banner is absolutely filled with Thai characters because there's no word for intersectionality so it needed to be explained and so as we even break down that in in Japanese for example where a lot of companies including the last two that I've worked with have offices you need to actually break down the concepts um, and when you were when you were talking there, it made me think of a specific example in Europe that really always is top of mind for me. And that's with our, when I was with Indeed, we had the Black Inclusion Group, which was, we called it big. So it was one of our biggest ERGs. And so it started in the US and as it came into Europe, the two um, locations that really like paved the way were in Amsterdam and in London. And they're two completely different contexts. So when we think of London or the UK, um, race and ethnicity has been documented and it's often where it used to be called BAME, so Black, um, African, minority, ethnic communities. And so there was conversations, there was like historical data to back up like the justification for having an ERG or here's evidence of discrimination happening. But also London is a very multicultural location. So some of the challenges they faced in London was understanding if the group is called Black Inclusion Group, then like what about anyone who doesn't identify as Black? Where, where do they fit? Should it be then like the Black and Brown Inclusion Group and starts opening it up to all of these things? Whereas if I take Amsterdam, Amsterdam being in the Netherlands is along with the UK, it is a former like colonizer. So it had its own inherent history um, in terms of like the role of like Dutch forces in the past in colonizing, also that the makeup of the country itself is really informed by like past colonies. And so the challenges there was a lot to do with language, obviously, because it was hybrid between Dutch and English, unpacking history, but also being confronted with different things. So there is a there is a um, cultural tradition in um, Amsterdam and in the Netherlands called Black Piet. And it's um, celebrated at Christmas. And like stereotypically, there would be somebody dressed in like a typical like Santa costume, but their face would be painted black. And so this posed a completely different quandary because we were talking about, you know, the holiday party at the end of the year and how to celebrate this. 
versus maybe in the UK that they're talking about, you know, what are the differences between all of the ethnic communities and how do we celebrate them, et cetera. And so breaking those down and like understanding those specific things, like even in itself, I feel like we could have a whole podcast about ERGs in the Netherlands and in the UK and in Dublin. And it's like, you really do need to take that time to reflect and go deeper, um, but also be adaptable. So not every ERG is going to have the same experience. So starting, let's say, a women's group in Amsterdam may be very, very different to starting a women's group in like Japan or in Spain, etc. That, honestly, for me, historically, I have never been a huge fan of chapters, but I've also worked at smaller mm-hmm. companies. But I do see the case if someone were to say, like, it's just different here. Um, and I see the purpose, even as people ask all the time, how do we have our strategy for diversity in EMEA, like you have to focus on a country, Mm -hmm. understand it, really dive deep and customize something for that country. Completely different take, I will say. But what advice would you give then for a company that doesn't have as many resources? um, So they probably can't even break into chapters because then there would be like no resources left. How do you maintain that? how do you make sure that the experience is still kind of personalized across regions, wherever members mm-hmm. are? I I find it's like a big experiment. So it's like testing right and seeing how they work. So in some cases, um, let's say an office of maybe a hundred people, maybe there's not a need to have five different ERGs. Maybe it's you know a diversity inclusion and belonging committee or group that is representative and intersectional, meaning that, you know, it includes voices and experiences from the disability community, from the black community, from women's groups, if they're there. And if they're not there, it's being very intentional about talking about those things that are not there. Um, And there's such helpful resources, whether it's like diversity calendars or different events that are happening externally, or like even different podcasts series on intersectional allyship there's so many things that people could start with so I think for a smaller company and for someone starting out it's like start with that inclusive mindset rather than trying to narrow down on a specific I think companies can often over index on let's say gender and know that gender is an issue let's say in terms of recruiting or in management position but when we talk about gender that so often actually means white women um, and so you need to unpack it further and it needs to be more intersectional. You need more women of color in leadership roles. You need more, you know, women of color in tech, et cetera. So I think for companies that are smaller, they often think of like, let's focus just on women, but then that actually dilutes the diversity and inclusive space. So for me, it would be starting out thinking and operating inclusively. Like just because you don't have somebody that's maybe disclosed that they have a disability it doesn't mean that your offices shouldn't be accessible it doesn't mean that you shouldn't turn on captions for example in zoom it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a reasonable accommodation process you should be preparing for when or assuming that you already have someone with a disability that needs it so i think it's starting in that base of inclusion and i think that's the biggest in a lot of ways like when we think of all these startups And it's like oftentimes, you know, it's two similar people, three similar people creating a product 
And as they grow and as they bring on more diversity, there is a lot more challenges of like adapting to culture and, you know, hiring for what's needed, but also like in the end, like it often makes it a lot better. That, I mean, honestly, I am going to have to watch this back myself for some of the things that people say. I mean, it speaks to, I see a lot, even when it comes to women's ERGs, that it's uh, it's a homogenous group nine times out of 10. But because, like you said, a lot of companies they over-index on that one piece of it, it actually takes away from the broader diversity conversation. Mm-hmm. That's just- uh, yeah. And I think, so I find that so interesting. And I think particularly, like, so I manage the, the women's program at HubSpot. And so I'm really conscious that I'm a white, like, able-bodied woman. So I need to be very conscious of that for all of our programming and put that kind of first. But also in my experiences outside of the States, women's groups are more intersectional um, naturally. So if we think of when I was at Indeed, the leadership councils and the different chapters were made up of like women from different parts of the business and different ages, different backgrounds, different races, different languages, because of our naturally culturally rich communities. And so they might necessarily have had the same problems that we have in the US where, you know, employees, let's take women of color, for example, they may, they might decide, I want to focus on one year G. Do I want to pick the women's group or do I want to pick the black group? I'm probably going to pick the black group. And then we don't have in a lot of ways because we are over-indexed a lot on women's issues is that people are more likely to join those women groups and to want those groups to be reflective of the community itself. Um, and similarly in, in Asia, I found that as well, like the teams that lead our women's group are often very, very um, diverse because we've got representation in like Singapore and Japan and Australia. And a lot of those places are homogenous, but a lot of those places are very, very diverse naturally. So it brings out that. Um, and I find that fascinating. I also think it's really, really interesting for women's groups of how maybe over-indexing on like female white representation uh, and typically maybe women in sales roles or women in those type of roles, how it informs actually then what ERGs do. So what you see is a correlation between let's do lots of events on how to build your brand, how to build confidence, like how to be an effective leader. What that actually then kind of shows up as in some cases is how to be a leader means how to be assertive, how to communicate like white male CEOs that we see versus maybe if you think of somebody where English isn't their first language and maybe um, they're excellent at what they do, but they don't communicate in the same kind of, you know, here is, look at me, this is everything I can do. Or maybe, you know, building your brand is often seen as um, posting a lot, let's say on LinkedIn. Like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm sharing photos, but that might not actually match up for somebody who's very introverted or somebody who doesn't like social media or somebody who actually leans into those more to one-to-one spaces. And so what I've seen is by bringing in those different voices, then the programming is better and it's more effective of what people need. And we're also then and not like doing the same things over and over again. Um, so yes, diversity and intersectionality in women's groups is like, one of my favorite topics. <laughs> I mean, I hope people are taking notes uh, for what you just mentioned. Because even a lot of those topics that you brought up, those are the ones that I see a lot with women's ERGs too. It's just 
yeah. Yeah, it's just you're saying so many things that are just like right. <laughs> I want to get into all of them, but I know we're coming up at time. So I have two other questions. One is around executive involvement. What um, advice would you give on how to better get executives or even when it comes to like the CEO of the company? A lot of the times it's like they they know about the ERGs, but they're not really engaged in them. Um, what advice would you give for ERGs or ERG program managers and increasing that engagement? Well, I guess like it's critical. Like you're not going to have the success and the impact without the support of executives. My dog is by me. If <laughs> um, you're not going to get that, that buy-in unless you have engagement. So I think there's a lot of CEOs and senior executives that are open. There's a lot that aren't and they don't feel that they have the time. And I've seen it work so, so well in terms of getting engagement. And it all starts with building relationships. Um, so at uh, Indeed, when I worked there, our, I think she was like our director or vice president of diversity, inclusion and belonging at the time. Her name's LaFawn Davis. She's now the executive vice president of ESG at Indeed. But she built like a phenomenal relationship with the CEO on a level of like sharing and understanding and being vulnerable together and understanding why is DI and the important. And how that translated was that the CEO got so involved in learning. Um, like there was one year, I think he still might do it actually, but he his basically his commitment was to only read books by um, authors of color. And so like something very practical for somebody who reads a lot, that was like really great for him. But also he created opportunities to learn. So we used to have quarterly meetings with him and the ERG leaders in Europe the ERG leaders in, in Asia, for him to understand and go deeper, ask questions, but also really importantly, give us advice. So we were very conscious of like a CEO's time. And we even had an exercise with Jason and Patria, which is think like a CEO. So like the CEO doesn't mean to listen to you for 45 minutes talking about X, Y, and Z. They need to know it like super quick, like an elevator pitch. And they need to know what's the problem, how are you going to solve it? And like, and when I say problem, it's like, what's the problem for the business? It's not like your personal issue. It's like those big things. So between us being very, very targeted in terms of what we wanted to do, building strong, like genuine relationships, it showed up because then it meant that people were getting um, more opportunities. So there was a lot of people who got like promoted. One person actually, Verna Lee James, was part of our Black Inclusion Group. And then she was actually an assistant to the chief of staff for two years, like she's recently changed roles, but something like that is just a phenomenal opportunity. Um, and also I think in terms of that engagement, like it was very vocal, it was very visible. And so I think that's a really good example of how, but I think it is a challenge to get there. And I also think that it's an increasing challenge because diversity, inclusion and belonging is seen as so political. It's seen as so kind of divisive and I, for anyone who's like been following the news, like there's so many reports of companies rescinding and going back on their diversity commitments and like CDOs stepping down or leaving. And it's like, we need to kind of lean into that and re-center on the commitment. But I think the commitment can't be made without a personal uh, relationship. So it, it is reaching out, it's getting to know, it's also going back to our earlier conversation about empathy is helping leaders build more empathy, helping them to understand the things that they don't know, but also in a lot of ways, helping them to ask those stupid questions. But I think on a personal level for me, 
being an executive sponsor or being, you know, a CEO that might, you know, really get a lot from its diversity of company needs to understand that it's a privilege. Like it's a privilege to be an executive sponsor. Like you need to do the work you need, to, especially if you're an ally. And um, cause I know there's a lot of um, white male senior executives that are phenomenal allies to like black and Latinx community groups. And so it's understanding it's a privilege to be there and to to learn and kind of give it your all. Cause I think oftentimes executives, they want to know, okay, what do you need from me? When and where? Please write it down. Please plan it out. Why should I do this? And you actually need to bring them on the journey so that they want to, because otherwise it's not sustainable. And I think the best way you can do it is just making those connections. And also the power of executives assistance. Like they run the world. <laughs> so it's reaching out to assistance of the CEO, building a relationship with them. Like some of the best progress I made in my previous companies was because of the power of executive assistants who understood DIMB, wanted to get involved and worked with their leaders to like keep the calendars free and tell them of events that were coming up. Um, so shout out to all the EAs. <laughs> that was such a good like little gym there. Like you have to be in touch with the EAs as well. Don't just if you try to skip over, it's only going to create more clutter and more mess and getting the executives involved. Mm. Yeah. And be clear and concise. Like you want to be reaching, if you're reaching out, let's say you've got an ask of your CEO, reach out and be like, here's the problem. This is what we need your support on. Here's the time commitment. Like give them the resources. Similar like with my role as a program manager, it's like I'm here to help like ERG leaders do their best jobs. And so do that. And it's like demonstrating that while also building a relationship and being vulnerable and asking for their vulnerability is just absolutely key. Otherwise, it's also not genuine. So, you know, what's the point? Very true. Very yeah. true. Well, on the ERG Movement podcast, we like to ask all of our guests two questions. Um, and they're kind of the same, but like in reverse, potentially. The first one with, is with the ERG Movement, we talk about ERGs 2.0, doing things better, um, especially now 50 years after ERGs first started, how can we switch things up for long-term success? What's a practice that you may see with ERGs? And you've already brought up a few of them, but even if you have any others um, that has happened, that maybe it's time to stop and like just let mm -hmm. go. So, and this is now, this is specific to larger ERGs that maybe have built their brand is moving away from the parties and the fun. Um, I think in a lot of companies, when it comes to connection, when it comes to social events, at least in my experience, we've got so many opportunities to do that with our teams, like in our offices, et cetera. And other people are also very happy to arrange those like parties and events. And so it's focusing more on that education, but I think long-term it's processes. Like we're not going to change like systematic barriers without addressing processes. So I would say like stop focusing on the parties and think more about what's our healthcare plan? Like, is that inclusive? Like when we're thinking of our customers that we're working with, are they, reflecting the values and mission that we have. So it's that thinking more long-term. I also think like in terms of stopping, I think oftentimes the over-labelization 
is a barrier, particularly um, in, in smaller companies or in locations where it's new. So like oftentimes rather than listing out all of the different ERGs, maybe it's just here's one place to get involved. Um, you know, whether it's an allyship group or whatever it is, it's like just give people um, like quality over quantity, um, yeah. I think is really, really, really critical, particularly as, you know, with this hybrid world and a lot of people in office or working at home and a lot of people are burnt out after COVID. It's like being really clear on what you're doing and like saying no. <laughs> and as a follow-up to that, my last question is also with the ERG movement, thinking forward in 10 years from now, what's something that you hope is like a standard for, for ERGs? Oh, compensation. Um, I think if ERG leaders are consistently demonstrating and going above and beyond the core of their role, they have to be compensated. And whether that's in, you know, um, they could be in many, many different ways. It could be a financial compensation. It could be access to opportunities. It could be just recognition. But having a system in place is so important because it just couldn't, it, reinforces the idea of like marginalized groups doing all of the work for nothing and maybe not seeing any change. So I think when you've got that kind of commitment, um, so yeah, I would definitely, definitely say compensation. That was such a great way to close. Honestly, thank you so much for joining us, Jill. There's so many things that we didn't get to touch on that I have written down. Definitely gonna have to do a part two. because Yeah, part two. Conversation for sure. Is oh. there anything that you want to leave the group with? Oh, I feel like I'm. I have, we have like so much more to talk about. I think to leave the group with something, like particularly for ERG leaders listening and for ERG program managers, it's like be kind to yourselves. I feel like so much of what we do, particularly during COVID, has been responding to world incidents or trying to be ahead of the game and oftentimes there hasn't felt like there's a moment to pause and oftentimes people don't really celebrate the successes but they uh, provide feedback on what could be improved or you know you might do five events and people will say well well what about this event that you could have done so just be kind to yourselves because again especially if it isn't your full-time job you can't do everything all at once and so take those moments to pause Take those moments at the end of the week to celebrate what you did. If you're an ERG leader, like take that time to write down what you did and share it with your manager so that they know and like create your own kind of, I've got a, a Slack channel that is just for me. And so anytime someone gives me kudos or I get really good feedback, I take a screenshot and put it there. So making time to go back and remind yourselves of that because this work is heavy and hard and oftentimes you can lose that focus and you need to pause, reflect, and kind of recenter. And the other thing I would say is say no. You can't do it all. You can't, you know, win for everybody. So say no to protect your yes um, is some key advice that I've learned over the last few years that is really, really, really valuable. Say no to protect your yes. I'm writing that down yes. and making it some yeah. work one of my problems for sure. Thank you so <laughs> much for joining us. Uh, everyone, uh, if you want to connect with Jill, her LinkedIn will be down below in the description. 
And we will make sure to catch you all on the next episode of the ERG Movement Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.